Well, uh, hometowns are a fickle thing, aren't they? I, uh, I grew up about four hours straight south of here, actually on, on Highway uh, 71. Uh, never in a million years did I think that I would end up on Highway 71, still in Iowa, and yet so far away from where I grew up. And, and I, I love many things about returning to my hometown. And one of those things, and, and some of you can t- attest to this if you're from further south, it is like so much warmer there. Uh, spring comes like a month earlier. It's, it's just crazy how much warmer it is. And it's, so it's, it's so much fun to, to get to go home. It's, it's fun to show my kids uh, toddler age, uh, places that I grew up, things that I got to experience. And yet there are some things about my hometown that just kind of like, I, I just don't understand. And, and they're, they're, I'll be honest, they're a lot less enjoyable uh, than other things. So for example, shortly after I graduated from high school, I went on this camping trip with a close friend of mine. Uh, the trip was meant to be a, a couple days of rest and relaxation before we just put our noses to the grindstone and worked to save up money for college uh, the rest of the summer. And, and what was supposed to be a three-day trip uh, down a, a river actually ended up being a, just like a three-hour trip and ended up in the emergency room uh, because I had an accident with a hatchet. And I, I remember uh, the, the next few weeks, I spent those weeks on, on crutches. I had to take time off work, and, and my bo- I was a lifeguard at the time uh, at our, our local fitness center, and my, uh, my boss was less than impressed that I couldn't work because I uh, had to, to be on crutches. And now, decades later, I can go back to that town, and I, I honestly have to be very, very careful about where I go in public because I might run into that boss and then he will tell every single person within earshot the story about how I, if I was just a few short centimeters uh, closer to my leg, I probably would have taken off my left foot. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that it wasn't my fault, and I, I promise it wasn't my fault. Uh, it doesn't matter that I'm an 18-year-old, and I wasn't even being foolish at the time, and you might not believe that or not. It doesn't matter that... Uh, that <laughs> that all of these things uh, were, were in my favor. It doesn't matter that I've accomplished a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. I have kids now uh, and, and all those years since I've left home. But to him and to those that he tells about my story, I'm still that 18-year-old that ended up in the ER and made him have to rewrite his lifeguard schedule for the month of May all of those years ago. There is something about hometowns that can be difficult for us as we, as we come back to them. It can be hard for those that we grow up with to shake the initial impressions of what we were like when we are younger. There was a, a French philosopher and, uh, and writer from the 1500s. His name was M- Michel de Montaigne. And he used to say that in his hometown, this famous author, this famous writer, in his hometown, his writings were looked at as nothing more than scribbles. If you went to the, the town that was the next closest town to where he was, uh, people began to say, oh yeah, I know him, or I'm, I'm familiar with his work. He's, he's uh, pretty bright. He's an intellectual. But then as you went further and further and further away from where he grew up, as people became less and less and less familiar with him as a person, they began to recognize him for his incredible intellectual and writing ability. And sometimes familiarity can blind us to what a person truly is or to what a person has become, no matter what they once were. And that's certainly the case with this morning's text in the Gospel of Mark. This morning we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And Mark 6, 1 through 6 provides this fascinating contrast to what we looked at the last couple weeks in Mark chapter 5. 
Mark chapter 5, one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. It gives us three powerful pictures, these incredible stories of faith and God's unbelievable power in Jesus. Mark 5 starts with this story of Jesus rescuing this man who's trapped by an army of evil. And having rescued that man, he sends this man out with incredible faith, incredible obedience from this man as he's sent out as a missionary to share of God's mercy and what Jesus has done for him. And then we continue in in Mark chapter 5, and we see the story of this unnamed woman. This unnamed woman is a social outcast. She suffers silently. She suffers alone. But then she comes to Jesus for healing. But Jesus doesn't just heal her. Jesus brings her before an entire crowd as she wants to remain silent, and she wants to remain unnoticed. Jesus brings her before an entire crowd, and he calls her his daughter. Jesus makes her his own. See, Jesus not only defeats armies of evil with the word, but he also makes the outcast a part of his family. And in Mark chapter 5, we see this story of one of the most prominent leaders in the village of Capernaum in that day. His name was Jairus. Jairus comes to Jesus with this small kernel of faith that Jesus can maybe heal his daughter, but Jesus wants more than that. The faith that Jairus brings to Jesus isn't enough, and so he lets Jairus' daughter die so that Jairus can trust Jesus even more. And Jairus' faith blossoms in the midst of this affliction. And he sees Jesus not as someone who can just save his daughter from disease, but actually someone who has power to rescue his daughter from death itself. Mark chapter 5 is all about how Jesus transforms lives. If you want to know what it looks like to have faith, then look at Mark chapter 5. Look at the garrison demoniac who becomes a missionary. Look at this unnamed woman who becomes Jesus' daughter. Look at this Pharisee named Jairus who sees Jesus effortlessly conquer death. And then we get to Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we see it's not about faith. It's not about believing. In fact, it's, it's all about unbelief. If you want to see what unbelief looks like, then go to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and look at the story of these crowds that are a part of the synagogue in Nazareth. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. This is a short text, and as we work our way through it, we're just going to do it pretty straightforward. We're just going to go verse by verse through this text and see what God is teaching us about the danger of unbelief. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, starting Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. You see, to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee. He's been traveling to all these different villages, and he's been proclaiming this message of the kingdom. This message of the kingdom is seen at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It's summarized there in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So while Jesus, is see, uh, while Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee, he is seeing his primary fo- focus as the proclamation of the gospel. That is why he has come to do ministry, is to tell people about the kingdom of God. 
And yet these crowds begin to gather around Jesus, not because of what he's preaching, but instead because of his miracles, the countless miracles that he performs. And in fact, Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark chapter 2, and Mark chapter 3 all speak to this growing popularity of Jesus, how Jesus continues to grow in popular, uh, popularity throughout Galilee. And soon thousands of people are flocking to Jesus for the chance of seeing him perform a miracle, for the chance of being healed themselves. And most of Jesus's ministry takes place near this village on the Sea of Galilee, this village named Capernaum. Occasionally, Jesus makes his way out into other villages, but most of the time, Jesus is by Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee, and people come to him. Now, Mark tells us that right on the, display, right on the heels of these incredible displays of power, after Jesus has done some incredible works, we see that Jesus decides to go to his hometown. His hometown of Nazareth is about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It's in the uh, Galilean hill country. It is in a very rocky area of Judea. While Capernaum uh, was quite large for its day, probably about 2,000 people, which in those days was quite a bit of people, Nazareth is significantly smaller. Nazareth probably only had 250 to 500 people living there. It is so insignificant that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. And at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John tells us about one of Jesus' disciples. When this disciple, Nathaniel, hears about Jesus' hometown, he says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is the center of nothing. It is a backwater, out-of-the-way, uh, little cluster of, of homes that is living in the shadow of a large city, uh, Sepphoris, the city that we don't see ever mentioned in the Bible and yet is actually the capital city of Galilee. It's just three or four miles away. And so Nazareth is this little enclave that is living in the shadow of this prominent city. No one of note, no one of prominence has ever come from Nazareth. Galilee was actually known as this backwater country, and Nazareth is considered the backwater country of the backwater country. Uh, at the risk of, of offending people, this is like, uh, Nazareth is like a small town Appalachia or small town Bayou country. It is miles from relevance. And so when word gets out that Jesus this son of Mary, the relative of most likely many people in that community. When word gets out that Jesus has become this traveling rabbi, that he's traveling around teaching people about the kingdom of God, there's a lot of bit of confusion. There's also a lot of bit of skeptic, uh, skepticism about him. And so Jesus travels back to Nazareth, and when he arrives in Nazareth, note that in, in verse 1, he arrives with his disciples. And one of those disciples is this man named Nathaniel, this man who uh, made that comment about anything good coming out of Nazareth. Jesus left Nazareth about a year or two before this, and he leaves as a carpenter. He leaves as a handyman, and now he returns as a traveling teacher with an entourage of disciples. And Sabbath comes, and Jesus does what he always does. He begins going, he goes to the synagogue like a good Jew would, and he begins teaching in the synagogue. Now, Mark doesn't tell us the, the specifics of Jesus' sermon because, honestly, he's already told us what the focus, the main point, the big idea of Jesus' sermon is. It's in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, what I already shared with us. It is about the kingdom of God, but more than that, it's not just about the kingdom of God. It's saying that the kingdom of God is found in him alone. If you want to become a part of God's kingdom 
this long-awaited kingdom, then you have to come to Jesus. There is no other way into God's kingdom except through him. Luke chapter 4 tells us of this other experience or a similar experience that Jesus has in the city of Nazareth. It's at the synagogue of Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, 16 through 30. And there's a bit of debate about whether Luke 4 is telling us about a different time or the same time as Mark chapter 6. And, and if I had to guess, I'd say that they are the same experience, uh, but I, I could be wrong on that. Either way, this has taken place in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6, and notice how Luke describes what takes place when Jesus is standing before the people in Nazareth. It says this, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say, them, to, say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is an astonishing claim from Jesus right here. Jesus is saying that God's liberation, that God's kingdom are, are found in him and in him alone. Jesus is standing before all of these people that he grew up with. He's standing with these people who, who had him over to their house when he was a nine-year-old. He's, he's standing before these people who he did skilled labor for them in their homes, helped remodel their bathroom or, or, the, modern, or the, the ancient equivalent of that. And he looks at that group of people and he says to them, I am the Messiah. I am the king that you have waited for and I am the one who is going to set you free. No wonder the people of Nazareth are astonished at this teaching. But this astonishment isn't the exact same thing that we've seen earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Mark uses this word amazed or, or marveled or astonished a lot in his Gospel to describe how people respond to Jesus. The first time it's used was when Jesus is standing before a crowd in a synagogue in Capernaum. It says this, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? a new teaching with authority. We see quickly in Nazareth, there's a difference between their amazement and what took place in Capernaum. Here in Nazareth, we are going to see that this astonishment, this amazement is couched in disbelief, this mindset of how could this be? But as we learn more and more about the crowd, uh, the, the city of Nazareth, we, we quickly see it's not just disbelief. How could this be? but it's unbelief, or this cannot be. So let's keep reading. Uh, let's pick up in, in verse 2 again. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph? And Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took 
offense at him? There was a ton of questions here. Before Jesus has a, a chance to respond to any of them, they just list a number of questions coming from the crowd here in the synagogue, and they go from this astonishment, oh, oh my goodness, what is Jesus saying, to at the end, they're, they're taking offense at him. At the end of verse four, uh, 3, it tells us that they take offense at Jesus. Jesus later actually compares himself to the prophets of the Old Testament. So what is going on here? What's taking place in this passage? Well, the crowd cannot believe who Jesus is because of their familiarity with him. So let's walk through these questions. There's really just two clusters of questions. Uh, a lot of, of questions that are really can be um, separated into two different sections. And here we're going to see the, the root of their disbelief, which is actually just unbelief. So this first cluster of questions, they, they ask Jesus actually very good questions. They asked Jesus, where did he get these things? Where did this man get these things? Where is this wisdom coming from? How are you able to do such mighty works through your hands? This is a group that they, these questions don't reject what they've seen. They don't reject what they've heard about Jesus. Now, news may travel slower to Nazareth than it does to other places, but they have still heard rumors about Jesus. Everyone in Galilee is talking about Jesus's power to heal, his power over evil, his authoritative teaching. And here, they, they, they're taken aback by this middle-aged carpenter who preaches in a way that no one else has before him. And so they ask, how is this possible? Jesus, what's your secret? And there's really only two answers to this question. Jesus, where did you get this power? The first is, you got it from God. Or the second option is, you got it from Satan. There's no other third option. There's not a secret lesson or a secret class that you can go to that teaches you how to perform miracles on your own. And we see earlier in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' own family begins to wonder this same question. Where, where's Jesus' power coming from. And they get dangerously close to concluding that Jesus actually sells his soul to the devil in order to have this power. Mark chapter 3, we see this story of, of Jesus' family thinking that he is going crazy with, uh, with this story of other people, the, the scribes of that day, thinking that he has sold his soul to the devil. And if his own family isn't sure where his power comes from, then it's really not all that surprising that other people, the rest of his town, is suspicious as well. It's probably a lot easier to believe that the guy who used to fix their houses for a decade or so has gone crazy and now is possessed than it is to conclude that he is actually God, that he is actually God in the flesh. And before we continue, let's, let's pause and, and, and just mention that we have to answer this question too. We have to answer the exact same question, too. The Gospel of Mark is an interactive book. It is a book that describes historical fact, but Mark does so in a way that we also have to make a conclusion. We cannot stay neutral as we read the Gospel of Mark. Every rhetorical question in the Gospel of Mark is being asked by people, but it's being asked of you. So, in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, this, this verse that we've already read, there's this question that the crowds ask after they've seen Jesus' power. They say this, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The question for us 
How are we going to interpret what took place in Galilee all those centuries ago? Are we going to ignore what Mark records? Are we going to deny that it actually took place? Are we going to stop? Are we going to stop just at the sign? Oh, Jesus did something very cool, but there's no deeper significance to it. Or are we going to go to that deeper significance? Are we going to look at the meaning of the sign that Jesus is at work, not just freeing people and healing people on the surface in their physical bodies, but that Jesus is actually at work healing people's souls, freeing people from the slavery to sin? What is this, the crowds ask, and we have to answer it. Mark chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus speaks and the, the seas obey him and the, the disciples are with Jesus and they are terrified by what they just saw take place, that Jesus has power over nature itself. And they, it says this in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here, Mark is laying out this evidence, and he's suggesting that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he's saying, you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision here. Who is this? Is this really God? Is this really God? And if it is God, then it's, he's worthy of your entire life. Or is this just a trick? Is this just a, a cool trick that Jesus learned? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then again in Mark chapter 6, there's another one of these rhetorical questions. Of where does Jesus get this power? You can't stay neutral. The second cluster of, of questions from the crowd in Nazareth, not rhetorical, but actually shows their problem with Jesus. They can't believe in Jesus' claims about who he is because they are too familiar with him. Or perhaps a better way of saying that is, they have their own preconceived notions of first what this Messiah, this coming king will be like who will free them. And second, they have their preconceived notions of who Jesus is. And the two don't mix. They're like oil and water. They are incompatible. And so first, they point to Jesus' vocation, his job when he lived in Nazareth. They say he was a carpenter. Or more accurately, perhaps, he was a craftsman. He worked with wood. He worked with stone. He worked with metal. He was the person in the village of Nazareth that you would come to uh, if you needed some housework done. He was the person who built their dining room tables. He was the one who crafted their farming tools and more. And this statement, is this not the carpenter, really contains two stumbling blocks for them. First, they can't fathom that the guy who made their chairs is actually God. They can't fathom that the guy who, who sharpened their plows is actually God in the flesh. And I, I admit, if I lived in Nazareth, this would be a stumbling block for me as well. It'd be difficult to, to reconcile these two things. But second, it also tells us they have a low view of work here, or at least certain forms of work. They reject the notion that all work is valuable in God's eyes, and they conclude that if Jesus really was God, if Jesus really was God's anointed one, then he would have been a scribe. He would have been the equivalent of a pastor. He would have worked in his study all day. The fact that Jesus worked with wood, 
The fact that Jesus had rough hands because they were always being used. The fact that Jesus had hands that bled because of splinters that got into them. That was proof to them that Jesus was not the Messiah. And incidentally, it is supremely important that Jesus is a day laborer for the majority of his life. Because it reminds each and every one of us just how valuable your work is to God. Jesus didn't become a preacher the moment he learned how to talk. Jesus didn't go to the cross the moment he was old enough and strong enough to be able to carry a wooden beam. He spent decades learning how to do hard work. And why? It's because it was worthy of doing. He wanted to show us, each and every one of us, how to honor God in every single facet of our lives, including our work. And that is the same thing that is true no matter what your vocation is, whether it is manual labor, or it is teaching, or it's staying at home with your kids, or it's driving a truck, or it's working in the fields, or if it's an office job, or it's a cashier at the grocery store, or any other form of work that honors God. Jesus lives this life that is a beautiful picture of the incredible value that he puts on what you do with your life. But there's this other objection that they have about Jesus. It's that they know his family too well. And so after Jesus gets done, they say, well, hold up, isn't that Mary's son? Hey, don't, don't we know his brothers and sisters? Don't they still live here in town? Hey, isn't, isn't your daughter married to, to Jesus' brother? Aren't your grandkids Jesus' nephews and, and nieces? Isn't Jesus' sister your wife? How on earth can this guy be who he claims to be? There's actually this veiled disgust in their words here. You see, in the first century Judaism, you typically didn't have a last name. You were known first by your village and second by the name of your father. And we see this still today in some of the names of uh, 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 some of our last names. So my mother's maiden name was Isaacson, which comes from years, decades, generations ago, before immigrating to the United States, her, one of her ancestors' last name was Isaacson, and that was because his father was named Isaac. So, in the first century, someone like Jesus would have been known as Jesus Bar, which is Aramaic for son of, Jesus Bar Joseph of Nazareth. So why is Jesus called the son of Mary here? Well, in small communities, everything is everyone's business, and everyone remembers what took place 30 years ago, how Mary got pregnant out of wedlock. And by calling Jesus the son of Mary, they're slandering him. They're reminding him of what they thought was his mom's fornication and how he was an illegitimate son. He had come from unwed parents, so how on earth could he be who he claims to be? God would never come from Nazareth, and if he did come from Nazareth, he would never use someone that was a teen mom like Mary. Notice how Jesus responds to these objections. Mark chapter 6, verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
Jesus quotes this old proverb to them that's probably the equivalent of our modern-day familiarity breeds contempt. But even more than that, Jesus uh, is making a claim about himself and about his ministry by referencing the, the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets frequently declared that the kingdom of God was coming and that because the kingdom was coming, you needed to repent. You needed to prepare your hearts, prepare yourself for God's day of judgment that is just around the corner. You need to make sure that you are on the right side of history. And almost universally, the prophets were dismissed by the people, by their own people. Now Jesus, he's coming and he's referencing the prophets and he's saying, hey, I'm being rejected just like the prophets, just like the people of Israel rejected Isaiah, just like the people of Israel rejected Jeremiah and Elisha and Elijah, centuries past. But he's also saying something about their message, about the kingdom that is now found in him. That they may reject him, it's not all that surprising, after all, the prophets were as well. But just like the prophets were vindicated by their message of warning and judgment that actually came, Jesus is saying that I'm going to be vindicated in front of all of you when my message of the kingdom comes to pass. And when does it come to pass? At the resurrection. Let's keep reading in verse 5. And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Now, verse 5 can sound a bit confusing here. We, we read it and we say, hey, is, is Mark telling us or, or trying to teach us or claim that Jesus is powerless in Nazareth, that he can't do any miracles? Or is he, is he telling us that Jesus' ability to do miracles is completely and utterly dependent upon other people? That Jesus actually doesn't have the power, it's your faith that has the power. Well, not at all. That's, that's not what he's telling us. Mark is teaching us that Jesus is met with such incredible, amazing unbelief from his own people that Jesus instead chooses not to do miracles. Now let's work through this. Luke tells us that Jesus knows the hearts of the crowds in Nazareth, that the crowds have seen what Jesus has done in other cities like Capernaum, and they're saying, okay, well, we want to see that as well. They're saying that in their own hearts. So Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, what the crowds are saying at Nazareth, they're, they're expecting Jesus to pull out all of the stops for them. Hey, Jesus, you did some pretty incredible things at Capernaum, but hey, you, you got to have something really special saved up for us because we're your hometown. We're your own people, right? After all, the hometown should receive something special from you. And so these crowds in Nazareth, they're demanding a sign from Jesus. The Pharisees actually do the exact same thing later in the Gospel of Mark, and they're condemned by Jesus for it. Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees came to him and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply. What, a, what an incredible phrase. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So the crowds in Nazareth are asking Jesus for a sign because they want a sign to, to prove to them that he is who he says he is. 
even though they're, they're shocked by his authoritative teaching, and even though they've heard about Jesus' teaching and his power to heal from other villages in Galilee, they are saying to Jesus, in essence, we're not going to believe until you show us something really special here. There's just one problem with such a heart. It's, it's that Mark has actually already addressed this. Mark has already addressed this back in Mark chapter 3 with Jesus' family and the scribes. The scribes saw many miraculous signs from Jesus, but rather than concluding he was God's anointed, they instead concluded, well, he must be possessed. That's what takes place in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So the crowds of Nazareth are saying, if you show us some mighty works, we are going to believe in you. And Jesus says, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. That's not how belief works. And so Jesus refuses to do many mighty works there, not because he's uncompassionate, not because he doesn't care about these people, not because they, uh, he doesn't want people to believe, but actually it's because of the opposite. You see, Jesus knows his Bible better than anyone else does. Psalm 78 is all about the failures of the wilderness generation, about how these people had been led out of Egypt miraculously by God, and God took care of them day after day after day for 40 years in the wilderness. And Psalm 78 is written looking back at this experience, and it talks about how they continued to be disobedient to God. Psalm 78 verse 32 says this, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And Jesus knows this took place all of those generations ago. And so he's saying, why would you think here in Nazareth that you are any different than the wilderness generation a millennia ago? Jesus knows that if he does mighty works in front of them, that won't lead them to faith. They are so stubborn in their unbelief. In fact, their hearts are so hard that if they were to witness some of these incredible things that Jesus was doing, and they would, they would just naturally conclude that Jesus was, was a, just a, a trickster, they'd actually bring judgment upon themselves. And so what Jesus is doing, paradoxically to our modern ears, where we think, well, if I just saw a miracle, I would believe. Paradoxically to our modern Years, not performing a miracle in Nazareth is one of the most compassionate and loving and caring things that Jesus could do for the people of Nazareth. In fact, their unbelief is so great that Mark tells us that Jesus is amazed by it. I mentioned earlier, Mark uses this kind of word all the time to describe the way crowds respond to Jesus. They see something that Jesus does and they are amazed by it. And so in Mark chapter 5, Jesus raises the dead and it says this, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Amazement at what Jesus is able to do. People are amazed by, by Jesus all the time for good reason. But Jesus rarely gets amazed by people. He rarely is astonished by people. Matthew and, Mar and Luke tell us uh, of another time, the only other time in the Gospels, where Jesus is astonished or amazed by something, and that is at the faith of a Gentile centurion. And he says this, When Jesus had heard these things, he marveled at him, the centurion, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. So occasionally, Jesus is amazed by faith that comes from the most unlikely of places. A faith in this Roman army general who is a pagan through and through has faith in Jesus and Jesus is astonished because he hasn't even seen that faith in God's own people. But we also see that sometimes Jesus is amazed by such incredible unbelief that comes from those who are supposed to be closest to him, like here in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus knew that the people of Nazareth had incredibly hard hearts. He knows the hearts of every single person, and yet Jesus is still left speechless at the unbelief of this people that he grew up with. And so Jesus leaves Nazareth, and he travels throughout the rest of the region of Galilee, and he continues to preach the gospel in other villages. The last time that we see Jesus in Nazareth is here. And Jesus encounters such unbelief that he leaves and says, I'm going to bring the gospel to places where the people are more receptive to the message. This is an incredibly difficult passage to work through. It ends abruptly. It ends with some relatively bad news. This unbelief of these people who are supposed to be closest to Jesus. So what can we learn from this text? Well, remember what we've been looking at for the last several weeks as we've been working through the last couple chapters of of Mark. Mark is teaching us all about what it means to be Jesus' disciple. He is telling us that to be Jesus' disciple, we have to sit at his feet. Mark chapter 3, verse 32. He's telling us that those who pursue Jesus, even when they don't understand him, are his disciples. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It is those who know who he is. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Jesus' disciples are those who leave everything to follow him and tell of his mercy at work in their lives. Mark chapter 5, verse 18. It is those who come to Jesus with this little bit of faith, but take a step of faith and are called instead Jesus' children. Mark chapter Chapter 5, verse 34. It is those who trust Jesus even in the darkest of nights. Mark chapter 5, verse 36. These are what it means to be Jesus' disciple. In contrast, here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is defining what it means to be a disciple again, but he's doing it negatively. He's saying, okay, that's what it meant to be a disciple. This is what it means to not be a disciple. He's defining discipleship by saying what we need to be very, very aware of in our own lives, and that is unbelief. We need to be very, very careful of becoming so familiar with Jesus that we become bored with him, that we reject who he truly is. Mark is uh, defining unbelief for us very clearly and concisely in in this passage. It's really what this passage is all about. It's all about unbelief. Unbelief is rooted in a refusal to recognize Jesus on his terms and not our own. Let me say that again. Jesus uh, tells us or teaches us in this passage that unbelief is rooted, it's found, its cause is in this refusal to recognize Jesus on his terms and not on our own. Consider the people of Nazareth. What is their greatest stumbling block to Jesus? What is their greatest stumbling block to belief? Well, it's that they couldn't believe that Jesus actually was who he said he was. 
They had too many preconceived notions of Jesus. They had too many preconceived notions of of the Messiah, of this king. And they still thought of Jesus as the carpenter. They still thought of Jesus as, as this one who lived among them to actually think of him as their king. And honestly, the same can be true of us today as well. Unbelief starts with refusing to accept Jesus on his terms. It starts there when we refuse to accept the Jesus of the Bible and, exchange, and instead exchange him for a Jesus who thinks like us, who acts like us, who lives exactly like us. And we don't call this unbelief, we call this measured. We call this thoughtful. We call this realistic. We call this balanced. But what it really is, is unbelief. Unbelief is a refusal to recognize Jesus on his terms and not on our own. And so as we close, simply just ask yourself, what are some ways that we reject the Jesus of the Bible for our own preconceived notions of him, our own pictures of Jesus? What are some areas where we have a tendency to say, I can't believe in a God who blank, fill in the blank. What are some ways that we try to rationalize some of the hard sayings of the Bible and say, well, Jesus couldn't actually have meant that? How do we segment off portions of our lives from God and say, well, I'm going to follow you over here, God, but you can't touch this? We must be careful because being a disciple means that we come to Jesus on Jesus' terms, not on our own. And so let's be a people that Jesus marvels at. But not marvel at us because we are so familiar with him that we are so unbelieving and Jesus is amazed by that, but instead, because of our faith. A faith that comes from the most unlikely of places. Unbelief is rooted in a refusal to recognize Jesus on his terms and not on our own. Let us be a people who are continually ever more molded more and more into the image of Christ with each and every day of our lives. Let's pray. God, uh, we look at this passage and I find it unsettling that people who knew Jesus so well didn't know him at all. And Father, I don't want that to be the case for us. I don't want us to be a people who are so familiar with you that we don't know you. That we can't accept who you really are. And so, God, we just pray now that you would reveal to us what it means to be your disciple. That if there are areas of our lives where we don't believe because we are rejecting who you truly are, blind spots in our lives or areas where we have conformed who you are more to how we want to live. God, we just repent of those and ask that you would show us what it truly means to be your disciple. That we would not be those who are like the crowd in Nazareth, but instead that we would have the disciple of the unnamed woman in Mark chapter 5, like Jairus in chapter 5, and the man at the beginning of chapter 5 who goes out as a missionary of mercy to tell people of what you have done for us. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.